on this episode of The Kinked Wire. We may not have had everything we wanted, but we had most of the things we needed. And most of the things we needed were our own ingenuity, our own innovativeness that comes from practicing our own specialty in interventional radiology. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the international radiology podcast from SIR's IR Quarterly Magazine. You can learn more at our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. And this episode is brought to you by Medtronic. Learn more at medtronic.com slash osteocool. In this episode, Kinkedwire host Warren Krakow speaks with Janice Newsom, an international radiologist in Atlanta, about the COVID-19 impact on her city and practice and the role of resiliency in the face of the pandemic. Very pleased to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know you're in Atlanta how are things going there these days with COVID from your perspective? Well, thanks for having me. It's great to take a time out of a busy academic interventional radiology practice to even talk about this because sometimes you just have to take your breath a little to figure out what's going on. So things are actually uh, going uh, well. I pause when I say that to find a piece of wood that I can knock on, <laughs> because how would things going these days? I'd say that we're in our recovery rebounding phase of this pandemic. Initially, we had to shut down everything in preparation for what we thought would be a tsunami of patients. And although we got many waves, at least at our Emory hospitals and our Grady hospitals, not really a tsunami. But if you cleaned out your entire hospitals and made preparations for a tsunami, now it's time to try to figure out what happens with a rebound. So we're in that process of recovery and rebounding and rebuilding right now. That's great. I was going to say, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't a tsunami. Uh, I know other folks we've spoken to, you know, in New York and, you know, obviously other places in the country have had different effects. But I think you raise a really interesting point. Whether you've had a tsunami or have been lucky like you folks, I think, you know, what next? What do you do now? As you, you put it really well, you've cleaned out the whole hospital. Uh, everybody's out. It sounds like you are dealing or have dealt with uh, many of the COVID patients. So what comes next? And from your perspective, what do, what do you see on the horizon in the immediate future, both as an IR and, and you know, really even just as a physician uh, there in Atlanta? Thanks for asking that question, because really, that's where we are right now. Like, what comes next? And for fear of sounding too preachish, if you've gone through a, an event like this, then somehow you have to be thinking, what did I learn and how can I be better off for it? And as an institution, as healthcare providers, those are also the questions that we're really asking now. So as we're looking into this recovery phase or rebuilding phase, I don't know that any of us are looking to go back to what we would consider normal, because clearly our normal did not hold up to the that we thought were good enough for sustaining this event. And since there will be many more waves, we can't build our house on the sand again. So what comes next is how do we really build our house on a, in a more solid foundation for the next few waves that could be coming? So as a physician leader, that is what preoccupies my mind. How do we have patients that have put off their care and were rescheduled for whatever reasons back to the hospital so that they could continue to get the care that they need? And how do we build a system within our hospital so that, you know, this doesn't happen again? 
And how do we prepare for the next wave? And if the next wave turns out to be the big wave, right, the real tsunami, how can we pack up in a more responsible fashion? Or how do we pack up and move out where it doesn't shut down the entire system? Like, what did we learn from this process that would make us better for it going forward? I have to say, if that's what preachy sounds like, I think we need more of this because those are those are all really superb questions. And I think you really echo the voices of a lot of interventionalists. And like I said, a lot of physicians who say, yeah. now what? You know, uh, what, what comes next? And certainly, you know, we all sort of collectively hope and are probably knocking on the same piece of wood that you were looking for earlier, that we don't <laughs> have a bad second wave. But, uh, you know, a lot of the data tells us that that unfortunately, you know, may happen. And, yeah. you know, as you suggested, things may not have been uh, really optimally set up for us. How do you feel things went for you, both just in your hospital, your institution and, and locally? Did you feel like yeah. you had the resources you needed? We are part of a highly complex matrix system at Emory in Atlanta. Emory Healthcare System decided very early on that the only way to deal with this is not going to be by a department level or you know specialty level or even Emory Healthcare level, but this is a population problem of the citizens of Atlanta and Georgia. So what we needed to do was to leverage our leadership abilities and all the patients that we have here and figure out how we take care of the population of Georgia, along with our other partners at Wellstar, Northside, and Piedmont. So how do I think that we uh, we did? Were we prepared for it? No, no one was prepared for it. But I think given all of what could have gone wrong, there are way more things that went right. And uh, setting up a incident command system within the hospital, but also within our individual divisions and allowing people to make decisions on a, a local level, giving people the authority that they can also uh, make some decisions, uh, you know, that flexibility every day, still with a lot more transparency that we've ever, ever had before that prepared us and allowed us to really navigate these uh, kind of turbulent waters uh, earlier on and still is so serving us very much right now. So turns out that we may not have had everything we wanted, but we had most of the things we needed. And most of the things we needed were our own ingenuity, our own innovativeness that comes from practicing our own specialty interventional radiologists. Some of the things that we have been talking about for years and years, this collaboration with GI, you know, trying to make sure that when someone comes in with a GI bleed and they go to endoscopy, that we are notified at the same time. Like, you know, that happened during the pandemic. We didn't want to be told later on because we needed to find out what is the most efficient way of getting these patients taken care of. The collaboration with OB GYN. We weren't going through procedures and policies for what happens when someone has a postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, or anyone in the operating room where bleeding was an issue because at first we weren't sure about our blood volume. So we were notified at the same time. So these collaborations really, you know, helped. And those are things that would take another two months, three months, four months of committee meetings to have happened before any of these decisions could have been made. You know, I've noticed that in my own experience and several folks we've spoken with have noticed the same things that people really, you know, sort of jumped out of their silos and, you know, really all sort of met and made things happen. Just out of curiosity, did your folks do that ahead of time, seeing the wave coming, you know, watching New York or Seattle or that kind of thing? Or did it just sort of evolve in the moment? 
we had a lot of preparation from watching the folks in New York. And before it even uh, hit New York, the Society of Interventional Radiology did an incredible job at trying to push out the information. We have a network of international folks. And so although individual places may not have been ready, long before the first case was even reported here, we had a professor that was uh, supposed to be traveling from China here. And that travel ban from China actually started perking up our ear. Like, well, Mm. geez, now we're not going to be able to bring our visiting professors over. What else is going on? Before this was declared a pandemic at Emory, I know that we had had several discussions with our interventional partners that were in Singapore that were seeing something else or Taiwan that was seeing something else. And I think we leveraged our global connectiveness to be prepared here knowing fully well that the things that they were doing took 20 years of pandemic preparedness over and over again. Like they dealt with SARS and other things. So, you know, we couldn't exactly have cappers and pappers for everyone. We didn't have negative pressure rooms and anti-rooms outside of, you know, so we had to kind of pare down the things that they were telling us that we needed to have that they evolved to right now that worked well for them. Now, how do we allow that to work well for us? Some of the folks we've spoken to had a specific room that they used, say for vascular cases or or whatnot, and only that room was used if there's a PUI or a COVID patient. Did you do that or did you? Yeah, so we did that, you know, again, same thing, taking those recommendations and we designated a single room, you know, took all the stuff out because like our, our room is probably like any other interventionalist room that we try to have as many of our equipment in the room as possible so that people are not running back and forth to getting, you know, a Cobra catheter or a stent or whatever. Mm-hmm. And as we were trying to get prepared for this pandemic at our hospital, we started, did those emptying the rooms and moving out extra equipment, just, you know, trying to get the rooms as prepared as possible. So we had two rooms there and we ran simulations day and night and try to figure out how we would be more nimble, going portably and what the route would be and who would call the elevator Vader and who would clear the hallways. Mm, That's great. Um, And we recorded these. So we were like a huge, huge medical system. So it's hard to get all the people that are on days and afternoons and nights and weekends. So we actually recorded this and then we asked people to watch it. And it's different when you're watching an animation from the World Health Organization about what is good hand washing technique versus if I'm watching Warren do it, which who mm-hmm. at the sink that I wash my hands at in the hallway and the same signs that I'm used to. And so we did these recordings of what this ideal would look like. And then we recorded some of the earlier simulations and we would have pre-briefs and debriefs afterwards until almost everyone started doing it as second nature. And this is at, you know, four major Emory Academic Center hospitals, as well as a inner city hospital at Grady that did Mm. like amazingly, like, you know, the team came together and we started doing like every patient as if they were COVID positive. So we became more and more prepared that we didn't even need this assigned room as we were trying to learn, is this all droplets? Is it aerosolized? What are we doing about surfaces? Are there fomites? You know, is there a, like 15 minutes from a big intubation or extubation before we go in? We were learning and changing 
at the same time. And that I think is like one of the challenges, but because there was transparency, I had a meeting with all of the site directors every night at six o'clock and they were responsible for disseminating the information to each of our, our sites among all the people. We cohorted all of our providers and learners into each site so that if one person got sick, then they wouldn't get the rest of the team sick. But then we still had this one way of trying to get this information across to each of the sites every day. And I think that that really, really helped. That's terrific. And, you know, I have to say the advent of recording, as you described it, it sounds like just a fantastic idea. I think it, it will be very helpful for the coming wave or waves if it's another pandemic. So I think that's a great idea and speaks, I think, to a term that comes to mind when I think about you and think about your story here, and that's resiliency. And I can't not ask about this because I know you gave a great talk uh, at the Association of Chiefs and IR. I'd like to just hear your thoughts about that, about resiliency, particularly as it relates to the face of perhaps the coming wave of stuff that's coming our way. What, What are your thoughts about that? Thanks for asking that as well. It's one of the things that I don't think we pay enough attention to. As we go through this and we're living through it, it's always tough to talk about coming on the other end of it because we're going to have waves of going through it. Having that resiliency is going to be critical. But I think one of the things that we have to look at before we get to resiliency is dealing with what are some of the emotional challenges and psychological impact of the things that are happening right now. And I find that unless we can acknowledge what is happening right now, then it's really sometimes tough to talk about how to bounce back and have that resiliency. So what I tell people is try to not minimize what you're feeling and what your colleagues are feeling. That is dealing with the here and right now. The other part of it is making sure that during this time, that just like they would say, if you're flying, that there are turbulence ahead put on your own mask Hmm. uh, and then help the person that is next to you. Right. And so it was a very important thing as leaders and everyone at that point became a leader because there's no one really that said that they had all the answers. Everyone's trying to figure some of this out together. How do you make sure that you're breathing so that you can help the other person understanding fully well that tomorrow you are the one that will need the mask put on you so that you're not always the one that is carrying the heavy load, but that you can carry my load today and tomorrow I'm going to carry your load. And so we started making sure that we weren't asking these superficial questions. It's like, how are you doing? But there was a very deep question, which is, what can I do for you? Not just, how are you doing? Because the easiest thing to do is to say, I'm doing fine, Warren. You know, I'm I'm okay. But what is it that I can do for you says that I'm lending all that I have to give to you today. So our resiliency program, or what I would call our restoration program, involved individuals first, but then it was some things that we had to do as an organization to help folks to get to where they can find their own resiliency. And that is providing counseling from the faculty staff assistant program. Uh, We reached out to the university for some support, whether it was childcare support or um, who can pick up my dry cleaners for me today. 
Never <laughs> right. I Where can I get this done? The university had closed, right? So we had medical students that were available and they started offering like babysitting services. And, and even though that was theirs, like, where do I find all this information? Like, how do I get a cooked meal tonight in the era of COVID where restaurants are closed and I'm working overnight? That type of information really helped people to find their own resiliency. And where I came in, you know, I'd say as a, as a leader or as leaders that are listening to it, is making sure that you're always able to provide you know, some positive message. Because it's the perspective of it is everything. Because sometimes when you're the one that's in the water, you don't get to understand like what the currents may be all around you. So it is having that perspective and understanding that I'm going to make it, that things are a little bit tough right now, but we're not all under the water. I think it's such an apt metaphor. I, I really like that. Put your your mask on before helping others, sort of that approach. I think that so well describes it and speaks to that resiliency that, you know, honestly, we all need, as, as you were indicating earlier, as healthcare providers, not just as IRs, to help everybody else as we try to get through what could be another wave coming. And, you know, speaking of the next wave, sounds like you've probably learned quite a bit in your journey so far through the first wave. Is there anything any one thing you would recommend to others to either do or do differently for the next wave as people perhaps begin to brace for that? I find that this is an era where almost nothing that you thought you knew beforehand really is true anymore. That's going to be my next podcast. All the things I thought I knew that were a lie. Right. <laughs> like, uh, you know, some w of which is like, oh, these gloves are for one time use. No, that's a lie. You can Purell them now. You know? <laughs> so the most important characteristic for being prepared for the next one, I believe, is to try to remain open minded and flexible. Because if we believe that we knew everything right now, then we're going to be run over by the next wave. Because the things that we thought we even knew at the beginning of this, they're changing 10 weeks into it. So it's trying to bring some of that perspective into a new wave if it arrives or any new situation that arrives, but being flexible and open-minded enough to say, well, I thought this worked, but this may not work now. This is the way that we understand it at the time. That is on today's date, May 29th at 12.07. We're doing the best that we know with the information that we have right now and still be able to be open-minded that tomorrow, the 30th, we may find out something a little bit different, that we're not holding on to old knowledge. And then when a new wave comes, then we break because we won't bend. So what we need to have is more open-mindedness and continue with all the other things that we learned from this part of it, which is to try to communicate often, Make sure that communication is not just heard, but received, that people are understanding and make sure that we are being transparent. And I think those are some of the things that will help us to be prepared for any future disasters. We sometimes forget how important this is for as a team. I definitely, from the bottom of my heart, would like to thank the team of physician leaders, APP leaders, training leaders administrative staff leaders, our environmental services leaders, 
and our other colleagues at Emory and Grady and to the surrounding hospitals in the Atlanta area that really made something that could have been devastating, not as devastating. And I hope that this is only the beginning of that camaraderie and the leadership training, making us into better people and not just better physicians uh, going forward. And, you know, we all have this common goal of helping our patients and ourselves and our families to get through this time and be ready for what comes next. I think that's fantastic. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share your great experiences and thoughts with all of us. And I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Janice Newsom talking about her experience with the pandemic. We thank Dr. Newsom for her time, Medtronic for supporting this episode, and you for listening to The King Wire. Our host is Dr. Warren Krakow. Our editor is Dr. Jamin Shaw. Our production manager is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at irq.surweb.org.